It is an enormous privilege and uh, pleasure for me to be here with you. The last time I spoke at a regional TGC conference here, it was with uh, men only. That was a delight. And now to see this hall filled with so many men and women, it is a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Uh, Thank you for having me. There is nothing small about the topic that has been given me. To talk of the love of God... But we Christians sometimes fail to remember how strange and alien that topic is in world religions. Three of us have just come from Japan. Buddhism doesn't really have a personal God at all. So to speak of a God personally loving is essentially strange in Buddhism. Some of us have spent time in the Middle East. The Quran speaks of Allah as sovereign, benevolent, merciful, just, but only very rarely as loving. He's very severe. But I suspect that part of the issue is that In Islam, the one God is simplex. That is, if you are utterly and totally one, simply. What does it mean to love? To love, there's got to be other. Whereas the God of the Bible is one, but complex. There is always other. So that the Bible insists the Father loves the Son and the son loves the father and that it was so in eternity past and we can speak of the Godhead and say with the apostle John God is love that's simply incoherent in most of the religions of the world simply incoherent so this afternoon we're going to focus on what used to be maybe still is what used to be the best-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. But before I begin to approach it, I want to spend a few minutes in a rather extended introduction. Nevertheless, I shall begin by reading John chapter 3, verse 16 to verse 21. John 3.16 to 21. You might want to hang on to that text, for we'll be referring to it more closely in a few minutes. It used to be that I would say, turn in your Bibles too. I'm more inclined to say, turn on your Bibles too today. (laughs) John 3.16. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, For Jesus' sake, 
Amen. I want to begin by talking about five ways in which the Bible speaks of the love of God. These are not five different loves of God. I'll come back to that point in a moment. But they are different ways in which the Bible speaks of the love of God. Number one, God's intra-Trinitarian love. That's just a big word that means God's love in the Godhead. The Father loves the Son, John 3 tells us, and has given him everything without holding anything back. The Father loves the Son, John 5 tells us, and the Father is determined that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The Son loves the Father, John 14 says. In fact, Jesus says, the world must know that I love the Father. And John 17 insists that Christian love finds its impetus and standard and power from love within the Godhead. The love of members of the triune God for one another is to characterize Christian love. Isn't that a spectacular thought? Now, clearly, when the Father loves the Son, we are given to understand that the Father finds the Son lovable. The Father is not saying, okay, I love him, but I can't stand him, really. He loves the Son and finds him lovable. And when the Son loves the Father, he finds him utterly adorable. And this relationship of love characterizes the one God, the God of the Bible. And we would not know this about God had not God in love chosen to reveal it about himself. That's the first way the Bible speaks about the love of God. Number two, the Bible speaks of God's providential love. That is, he is the God who cares for this created order that he has made. Jesus goes so far as to say in the Sermon on the Mount that God sends his love, sends his reign, his care, his reign upon the just and upon the unjust alike. And the inference we are to draw is that therefore we should love our enemies. God doesn't say, well, that's a load of blighters over there. They're pretty nasty. We'll send them some drought. This is a fine, upstanding Christian church. They can have some rain. No, there is a profound sense in which God, out of his providential care for this created order that he has made, despite our rebellion and lostness, the psalmists say that he sends food to the to, to, to the lion, so that the lion eats. That's part of God's providential care. He, 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 he watches over even a sparrow so that not a bird falls from the sky apart from the sanction of God. In this sense, God's love is amoral. Not immoral, but amoral. It is not conditioned by the holiness of of the people whom he is blessing with his care. Number three. We may speak of God's yearning, inviting, appealing love. He's the God who cries, turn, turn. Why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Or in our text, God... So love the world. And as we'll see in a few moments, this world is a God-damned world. But he loves it anyway. He invites. He commands. He demands repentance. He says there is life. He promises forgiveness to this world. He is a yearning, inviting, loving God. Some people have pointed out that 
This seems a bit strange when you recall what else John writes. In 1 John chapter 2, Christians are told, do not love the world. But here you find God loving the world. What's going on? But the issue does not turn on the exact meaning of love or the exact meaning of world. The issue turns on context. Human beings are not to love the world, in 1 John 2, with a selfish, ugly love of participation. God loves this same ugly world with a self-sacrificing love of redemption. Insofar as Christians come to love the world as God loves the world, then we are to love the world. That's what mission is about. But we're not to love the world and the flesh and the devil with that ugly thing that is nothing more than the lust to be part of the world. God has no lust to participate in this world. But he loves the world anyway. And in this case, as we'll see, unlike the situation where the father loves the son and finds him lovable, God looks at the world and finds it unlovable and loves it anyway. But we'll come back to that point. Number four, God's elective love. In the Old Testament, why does God love Israel? The question is explicitly raised in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 10. Is it because Israel is bigger? No. Wiser? No. More holy? No. More powerful? No. Why? Because God sets his affection on Israel. Therefore, he loves her. In other words, he loves her because he loves her. That's it. Which is why Malachi can say, quoting God, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now in this case, clearly, when the Bible speaks in those terms, God does not love everybody exactly the same way. It is a selective love, an elective love. Number five. We may also speak in scripture of God's covenantal love. That is, God's love addressed to his covenant people, which is nevertheless conditioned in some sense on their obedience. For example, even in the Ten Commandments, as reported in Exodus chapter 20, God sends his love. He keeps covenantal faithfulness to the third and fourth generation, to the thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. He shows love to them, to the thousands of generations who love him and keep his commandments. Small wonder Jude can say, keep yourselves in the love of God, which clearly implies in some sense you may not keep yourselves in the love of God. Now let's pause for a moment. This most emphatically is not a list of five loves. As if God wakes up someday and says, hmm, which love shall I use today? Maybe number three. That, that's bizarre. But we shouldn't think this diverse way, this, these diverse ways of, of God talking about his love is as strange as first appears. For in several of these instances, we talk exactly the same way. Human-human relationships are complex, let alone God-human relationships. For example, I have two children, a daughter and a son. I think I can say with utter confidence, I, li I love my children with an unconditional love. That is, no matter what they do, I love them. My daughter is head of a department of a high school in California that teaches disadvantaged children. 
But if instead she moved to L.A. and decided to sell herself as a street prostitute, I think I could say with real confidence that I'd love her anyway. She's my daughter. My son, who used to serve at K-Bay here, now is at Quantico. And if instead he went AWOL and decided to go to New York City and push drugs, I think I'd love him anyway. My love for my kids is unconditional. On the other hand, when they were still living at home and learning to drive, if I said to one of them, all right, here are the keys, back by midnight. If they appeared at 12.15, without a good excuse, they faced the wrath of dad. In that sense, my love for them was conditional on their obedience. And if they wanted to meet the wrath of God expressed through their father, all they had to do was disobey. And as long as they were under my roof and my sanction, they faced it. So also with God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's, that's what God commands you to do. So that there is some sense in which by disobedience and disavowal, even while it is true that God loves you, if you are his child unconditionally, yet in another sense, you jolly well better keep in his love. Or there are sanctions. So I want to insist in the strongest possible terms that God does not have discrete loves that he turns on and off, switches. But the Bible does have different ways of talking about his love. And this is important because to remember these things will give us an integrated view of God and his character and the nature of his love that will help us to avoid some common cliches that theologically lead us astray. For example, have you ever heard the cliche, God loves everyone exactly the same? True or untrue? It depends. Did, did you see, if you're talking about God's providential care, then of course it's true. If you're talking about the way he, he confronts this lost world and, and invites and demands that people come to him, of course it's true. On the other hand, if you're talking about his elective love or his covenantal love, it's simply not the way the language of Scripture works. Do you see? Or how about this cliche? God will never love you more than he does right now. True or not true? It depends. If, if you're talking about the certainty of God's elective love, I have loved you with an everlasting love, spoken to his redeemed from eternity past. It's, it's abundantly true. It's, it's wonderfully true. It's gloriously true. Yet in covenantal interaction with his own community, he can still say, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Or how about God loves you regardless of what you've done and regardless of what you'll do. True or not true? It depends. It doesn't depend on crooked things in God. It doesn't depend on who we are. It, it depends in the first instance on carefully observing the context of the biblical expressions. Because what has gone wrong in some of our thinking is that we found one passage or two passages or three passages that all talk about God in the same way. Then we've universalized them and pretended that all passages talk about God in exactly the same way. Do you see? And then you end up with distortion of scripture. God besides all of the other things that are truly said of him, is a person. And in personal relationships, love takes on different hues in different contexts. Don't you see? And so we come to our passage. God so loved the world. 
I want to make four points from this passage in the context of the book of John. Number one, it is simply astonishing that God loves us. There have been times in the history of the church when people found it very easy to believe that God is holy, but found it rather difficult to believe that God is love. But by and large, that does not characterize especially the Western church today. Somehow, we've got to the point where we find it difficult to believe that God is genuinely, truly holy, and easy to believe that God is love. But the love that God displays in this easy notion that God is love is hugely sentimental. Quite a number of years ago, I was studying in Germany. At the time, I was pursuing a degree in Cambridge, England, and I had taught myself to read German, but I couldn't really speak it. So I went to Germany to study for a few months and improve my German and get some speed up in talking. And in that language school was a young French West African who was there. He was doing a PhD in engineering at a German university and needed to get his German up. When we both got good and tired of German, we went and had a meal together and talked French because I was brought up in French, he was from French West Africa, and French in our ears sounded a lot more civilized than German. So we would go out once or twice a week and have a meal together in French and be refreshed before the next day of all the ah and oh sounds. <laughs> After a while, I got to know him pretty well. I discovered that his wife was studying medicine in London. And I also observed that once or twice a week, he would go down to the red light district of town, pay his money, and have his woman. So I knew him well enough to ask him at this point. I said, what would you do if you uh, discovered that your wife were sleeping around with somebody else in, in London? Oh, he said, I'd kill her. I said, that sounds a bit like a double standard, wouldn't you say? God doesn't grade on, grade on the curve. Oh, he said, uh, you don't understand. In my tribe, the men are allowed to sleep around. But if she, uh, if she slept around, she would be dishonoring me. It would be a matter of principle. I'd, 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 have, to, I'd have to kill her because she, she dishonored me. I said, but you told me that you were brought up in a mission school. You've, you've read the Bible. You, you know that God doesn't have two sexual standards, one for men, one for women. Are you going to appeal to your tribe to override the word of God? He said, oh, le bon Dieu, il doit nous pardonner, c'est son métier. God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. And I suspect that in much of the Western world, although it might not be put like that, that was first said by Catherine the Great, incidentally. It might not be put like that, but a lot of us live like that. God's bound to forgive. That's his job. Besides, I'm nice. I might even be cute. God's love is big, isn't it? After all, God loved the world. The world's a big place and God loves the world. His, his love is pretty admirable and I'm part of the world. God loves me. So there. What that forgets is that for John, who uses the word world repeatedly, in almost every occurrence, world for John means the human race in active, defiant rebellion against God. It's not talking about nature or the universe in some abstract sense. It's the rebellious moral order against God. So hear what John says, for example, in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, that is what wells up from inside us because of what we are. The lust of the eyes, that is everything outside that we desire and covet, that we want to make ours. The pride of life, 
the pretentiousness of our very existence comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You see, John has already made this point in his gospel. What do we read in chapter 1, verse 10? He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So blind are we that we, his creatures, do not recognize our creator. Or again at the end of chapter 2, Jesus performs some signs. Some people put their faith in him. But, 2.24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Or again in our passage, verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In the beginning, there was God. And his image bearers loved him. More importantly, they basked in his love for them. Genesis has a wonderful way of depicting it. They walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. You wake up in the morning and you, you think about God. You marvel at his holiness and his grace and his attributes and your dependence upon him and his sovereign wisdom that is past finding out. Your every affection is for him. You are inevitably looking at the entire universe through his eyes because he's at the center of your life. And you are rightly related to other image bearers because each of you is rightly related to him. But with the coming of what we call the fall, everything is inverted. Do you remember the temptation given to Eve? Oh, God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. The temptation to become like God is not some little temptation to bend a rule, to eat an apple. It's massive. It's the very essence of idolatry. Now, because I'm on top and God is underneath, then this God jolly well better serve me, or quite frankly, I'll find other gods, thank you. That's called idolatry. And now I'm looking at everything through my eyes. It's not that everything I see is bad or wicked or sinful. It's the way I see is bad and wicked and sinful because I'm no longer seeing things through God's eyes from his perspective with him at the center of the universe and the heart of my affections and basking in turn in his love. That's not the way. I look at things as if I'm at the center of the universe. It's not as if I'm so crass as to go around saying, I'm at the center of the universe. Nobody's that crass. Well, maybe Nietzsche is. But nobody else is quite that crass. But nevertheless, it's the way we act. What do you think about when you first wake up in the morning? And now, because I'm at the center of the universe and God is beneath me, it takes an effort of will and mind to think about loving him with heart and soul and mind and strength. That's how lost I am. And if I'm going to be at the center of the universe, your problem, you stupid idiot, is that you think you're at the center of the universe. And that means you and I will fight. And there's the beginning of rape and fences and war and jealousy and covetousness and love and envy and bitterness and malice. All, all because we say, I will be God. And that is the world. God's love in John chapter 
3, verse 16, is not to be admired because the world is such a big place, but because the world is such a bad place. So picture Bob and Sue, two Hawaiians, (laughs) walking on the Waikiki beach. The sun is going down. It's a glorious night. The warm air is blowing over them. They've kicked off their sandals. The wet sand is squishing between their toes. He has her hand in his. And as they walk down the beach, they're contemplating marriage in six months. And he turns to her and he says, Sue, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Well, he could mean a lot of things. If he has no moral principles at all, he might simply mean he wants to go to bed with her forthwith. He may mean no more than that. But let's assume that there's moral principle and compass in his life. Let's even assume that he's a a Christian at a TGC church. And so is she. And they believe in God and his covenant and his mercy. And they see the place of the cross and they want to be holy. Let's assume all of that. And he says, Sue, I love you. What does he mean? Well, the least that he means is something like this. Sue, in my eyes, you are utterly lovable. Now, he might mean a lot more than that, but that's the least that he means. And if he has a modicum of poetry in him, he might spell some of that out. I love your sense of humor. I love the smell of the wind in your hair. Your laughter makes my heart leap for joy. I love your relationships, your personality. It's terrific. Doesn't he mean things like that? He does not mean, whatever else he means, he does not mean, quite frankly, Sue, your hair is so greasy you could lubricate an (laughs) 18-wheeler. Your knees remind me of a crippled camel. Your halitosis could scare off a herd of rampaging elephants. And quite frankly, you have the personality of Genghis Khan. But I love you! He doesn't mean that. Does he? So now God says to the world, World, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean world? You are so rapturously attractive in my life, I can't imagine eternity without you. Your scintillating conversation, your sharp wit, your charm, heaven would be barren without your existence. I cannot imagine continuing in my eternality apart from you. (laughs) The very notion is bizarre. No, what God means in this text is that God loves this world which, morally, spiritually speaking, is morally, spiritually, the people with the greasy hair, the halitosis, and the personality of Genghis Khan. And he loves us anyway, not because we're lovable, but because he is love. The truth of the matter is that God does stand over against us in his holiness and wrath. 600 times the Old Testament insists on the point. Paul makes much of the same truth. God stands over against us in his wrath because of his holiness and our sin. But God also stands over against us in love simply because he is that kind of God. So when people come to you, pastor, and say, I just find it hard to believe that God actually loves him. I mean, if you knew everything that I've done, you'd agree with me. God God can't possibly love me. What are you supposed to say? I beg of you, do not say, do not ever say, oh, you're not as bad as all that. I know some people are probably worse. (laughs) No, no, no. What you say is, 
you are only a tiny fraction. Only a tiny fraction of your evil has come to your attention. I, 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 I'm not even joking. You are far worse. You are far more rebellious. You are far more ugly in God's eyes than you even begin to understand. If you've got to be good for God to love you, you're going to hell. Don't you see that? You haven't come to the beginning of the gospel unless you see that. And if God loves you anyway, it's not because you're nice. Or it's not because there are mitigating circumstances in your sin. There aren't any. It's because God loves the world. It is simply astonishing that God loves us. Number two. The measure of God's love for us is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Even to begin to understand this, we, we have to stop and think as well as we can with our poor veiled eyes what the love of the Father for the Son looks like in eternity past. Let's begin with the pagan gods of Jesus' day and Paul's day. The Greeks and Romans had thousands of gods. Contemporary Hinduism has millions. You can't possibly know them all. And all these gods have various domains. So there's a god that controls the sea, and a god that looks after love, and a god that looks after um, human discourse, and so on. And so part of pagan religion, therefore, is to work through the appropriate temple sacrifices and so on to, to please those gods so that they bless you in the approved areas. Do you, do you see? It's a I scratch your back, you scratch my back sort of religion. That's, that's what pagan religion is. And you can live your life in a certain amount of fear precisely because you might not ever be quite certain that you've scratched one of these gods' backs enough. Not only so, but you read the myths of these gods and you discover that they're just like us, only a little bit more souped up. They have their loves and their fears and their jealousies and their hatreds and some of them can't stand their mother and others are trying to kill their dad and, and somebody gets bumped off and, and somebody is nurturing resentment all his life. And, and th these are the gods. Th th these are the gods. Did you see? And you're trying to scratch their back so they'll please you. Then you come to the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength. See, that doesn't even make sense in paganism because you've got to share your allegiance out to all the different gods with all the different domains. Until you come to monotheism, one God, it doesn't make sense to devote all your allegiance to one God. But once you've got monotheism, it doesn't make sense not to. Moreover, this God, it turns out, doesn't need you. Unlike the pagan gods who have their own sins and psychological torturous points and who have to be stroked and ha have to be loved and have to be sacrificed to and so on in order to win their favor, this God doesn't need a thing. In eternity past, God was perfectly content. There's an old Latin medieval hymn that was first translated into English in the 17th century. It's old English, but the first verse is wonderful. Thou wast, O God, and thou wast blessed before the world began. Of thine eternity possessed before time's hourglass ran. 
Thou needest none thy praise to sing as if thy joy could fade. Hadst thou needed anything, thou couldst have nothing made. In other words, if God had been the kind of God that needed somebody to scratch his back, he couldn't have been the sort of God that made anything in the first place. He would have been too small. In eternity past, God was not up there in heaven somewhere saying, you know, last eternity too, I've been a bit lonely. I think I'll make some image bearers. Be nice to have a wee chat. How bizarre is that? How how diminishing that is to God. In eternity past, the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. But perfection was already there. You are not to think of God arriving at Thursday afternoon, wringing his hands metaphorically and saying, oh, I can hardly wait till the Lord's day when they break out those guitars to sing my praises. (laughs) There is a profound sense in which God does not need our worship. He doesn't need it. Doesn't need you. Not any one of you. And he doesn't need me, that's for sure. Doesn't need us. Don't misunderstand. That is not to say that God doesn't interact with us. That's a bit different. He interacts with us and he commands certain things. He expects certain things. He can become wrathful, rightly, judicially, if he doesn't get what he rightly demands. But never, ever, ever is this because of some psychological defect in himself, some deep-seated need. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't have any needs. Paul understands that when he's preaching to pagans, that's one of the points he has to make. Because they're thinking of gods who have all these needs. So when he preaches in Acts chapter 17 to the pagans at Athens with their many, many gods, he talks about creation and how how God made the entire human race. And then he adds, and it's not as if he needed anything. But he himself gives life and breath and everything else, he says. In other words, the needs go all one way. He doesn't need us. But we need him for every heartbeat, every breath we draw, every providential circumstance in our life that keeps us alive. We need him. We need him. And if at any point God says, heart, stop beating. Your heart stops beating. And God may then speak as to the rich fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. So how are you going to get things out of this God? He has no need, so you've got nothing to trade. Nothing. In fact, all you are is already his. The fact that you don't recognize it is already part of your lostness. You have a sovereign God who doesn't need a thing. The only way you'll get anywhere with him is out of his sheer grace. That's not only the explicit teaching of Scripture. It eventually becomes so common. It's the axiom of Scripture. It's the self-evident thing. It's the thing that's presupposed everywhere. If I have my devotions, will I get a good mark in calculus? God help us. You're going to swap with this God? No, the really spectacular element in this is not only that he's the one God who deals with us in grace but that the measure of this one God dealing with us in grace is that he loves this God-damned world so much. He sends his son. This son with whom he had an unimaginably intimate, 
relationship in eternity past with the most unbounded and immeasurable joy. This relationship that was unqualifiedly fulfilling and self-giving and holy. This relationship that is at the very center of what it means for God to be God. The triune God of the Bible and his plan for this world which he himself says is already condemned is to give his son. And not only to give him in the incarnation but in the road to Gethsemane and Golgotha and to bear the shame and ignominy of the judicial wrath of his own father on our behalf. I'm from an older generation. I like poetry. William Cooper, spelled Cowper, William Cooper was a member of the Olney Baptist Church where he was a friend and parishioner of John Newton. Not an Olney Baptist Church, it was the state church. Olney Church, where he was a friend of John Newton who gave us the great hymn, Amazing Grace. William Cooper, in his lifetime, was emotionally unstable. He sank into some horrendous depressions that were so severe, and without any drugs to ameliorate anything, he spent four sustained periods of time in a British insane asylum. Then he came out. There was a, a woman in the church who nursed him back to health several occasions. And then he helped put together the Olney hymn book with John Newton. And to earn his way, he wrote learned essays that were read by students at Oxford and Cambridge University. He was a literary critic. A century after he died, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, great 19th century poet, wrote an ode to William Cooper. She simply called it Cooper's Grave. She pictures herself standing by the grave of William Cooper. And in a three-page poem, she runs through the turning points in his life and talks about this massive intellect that wrote such essays that were shaping the minds of graduate students and undergraduate students at Oxford and Cambridge and his love for God and his devotion in the local church and his friendship with others and the hymns that he wrote and the poetry. And then as she moves to the end, she talks in more and more elusive and, and um, insubstantial, more, more symbol-laden ways of his insanity. And finally she ends up and says, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, this universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amidst his lost creation that of the lost, no son should use this cry of desolation. Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying that Christ cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that for all eternity, William Cooper wouldn't have to. That of the lost, no son should use this cry of desolation. Jesus cried, my God, my God. At incalculable price to his heavenly father. So that for all eternity, Don Carson wouldn't have to. The measure of God's love for us is Jesus.
Number three, the purpose of God's love for us is that we might have life. Look at the diverse language. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So life as opposed to death. Every death. Death to God. Physical death. The second death. They're all ours. But he came that we shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. That is, to save the already condemned world through him. The world was already condemned. It's not as if he came and then had to decide whether it would be condemned or saved. It was already condemned. The same point is made in the last verse of this chapter. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It is already there. But God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. That is, from condemnation. And if we still haven't got it, verse 18 unpacks it some more. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We're already condemned. He's come to save us from that condemnation. In other words, it is utterly inadequate to think of the cross as merely some sort of abstract, generally sentimental display of God's love. The cross has a purpose. It's to give us life instead of death. It's to save us when we're lost. It's to pardon us when we're condemned. And that is done in Scripture because he bears our sin in his own body on the tree. His righteousness becomes ours. My sin becomes his. He pays for it. He cancels it. He wipes it out. And in so doing, turns aside the judicial wrath of his heavenly Father that we might be received in him. There is probably no doctrine in the last 300 years that has been more despised than what is sometimes called the substitutionary penal atonement of Christ. That is, in which Christ substitutes himself for his people and bears their punishment, hence penal. People find it a lot easier to talk about a sort of generalized love of God. Of course God loves us. Look at the cross. I mean, it's, it's wonderful how much God loves us, isn't it? The stupidity of that position was exposed more forcefully than I've seen anywhere else by a Scottish theologian a century ago. He pictured a man running down Brighton Pier in England, a pier where anybody comes and plays on the beach and has a wonderful time, and the pier stretches a quarter of a mile out into the ocean and, and so on. So he, he pictures somebody running down Brighton Pier, running down Diamond Head, and running out toward the sea, full tilt, running out, running out, world, world, I love you, world, 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 I love you, watch me, world, world, I love you, jumps off Diamond Head and goes into the sea and drowns. Has he proved that he loves the world? I don't think so. I think he's proved he's nuts. He hasn't accomplished anything. He hasn't even aimed at anything. He doesn't display anything. It displays a person who's, who's lost touch with reality. So what is Jesus doing on the cross? Is he hanging on the cross and saying, world, world, I love you. This is how much. Is God crying from heaven? Look at my son. I love you. I told you so. I love you. But not accomplishing anything? This would prove, dare I say it, that God is nuts. It doesn't display a thing. God does nothing by accident. He does nothing without purpose. And his word tells us what this purpose is. He comes to those who are perishing that they might have life. He comes to those who are condemned that they might be forgiven. He comes to those who are dirty that they might be clean. He comes to those who are rebels that they might become his sons and daughters. 
He comes to those who wander and muck and mire and prefer it and changes their hearts through the new birth, which is what this chapter is about. The first 15 verses are all Christ's conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus still doesn't have a clue. Jesus insists that the very purpose of his coming was to give new birth because without new birth, we're lost. We must have a new origin, a new pulsating power within us, new life that actually changes what we do. Biblical gospel does not merely change our status with God. It changes our hearts. And as a result, we begin to love what we did not love and we begin to hate what we once loved. And that is the power of the cross. The purpose of God's love for us is that we might have life. Finally, the means by which we come to enjoy this love is faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our problem, I suspect, when we hear verses like this today is that we have been subtly influenced, recognized or otherwise, by contemporary culture's understanding of what faith is. On the streets of Honolulu, what does faith mean to the ordinary passerby? I suspect it means one of two things. I think this is true in much of the world. I'm sure it's true in Japan. It is certainly true in mainland America. I suspect it's true here. Minority use, faith is a synonym for religion. There are many religions. There are many faiths. More common use in Western world today and beyond, faith is a personal, subjective, religious choice. It's a personal, subjective, religious choice. It's got nothing to do with truth. It's a personal, subjective, religious choice. So, you have your Jesus, I have my Buddha. No point arguing about it, because it's a matter of faith. You don't argue about matters of faith. There's no truth claim in them, or there's no truth claim that's verifiable. You have your faith, I have my faith. And it's nice that we all have faith, isn't it? Isn't that the way faith is used today? And we get a bit intimidated by this after a while. The more you say, no, 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 Jesus really did rise from the dead, they say, well, I'm, I'm glad you believe it. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's your faith, you know? I'm, I'm glad for you. No, 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 he, he actually did rise from the grave. Yes, it's wonderful how, how you believe that. You know, I, I don't. For, for, for myself, I believe in the Quran. You know, Allah is, is the one God and Muhammad is his prophet. That's my faith. Science deals with facts. It may have some overarching theories, but they're all testable in principle. In religion, it's not. It's just a matter of faith. Isn't that the way we use the word faith today in our culture? But although that's the dominant usage of the word faith today in our culture, not once, not once does the Bible ever use faith that way or the verb to believe that way. Not once. Faith is first and foremost, it's got different shadings in different contexts, but it's first and foremost in the Bible, the God-given ability to believe certain things that are true. The Bible never comes to us and says, believe, 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 believe. Just shut up and believe. Don't ask questions. Just shut up and believe. Believe. Rather, faith in Scripture is built up by the articulation and defense of the truth mediated by the Spirit of God. The Bible never encourages you to believe something that isn't true. It never encourages you to believe something that might not be true. It only encourages you to believe what's truth. And the truth, or many parts of it, is in the public arena. It's a well-known story, but 
I'll repeat it here. Fifty years or so ago, Carl Henry, who was editor of Christianity Today as it then was, interviewed with other journalists the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who was visiting in New York. And um, when Q&A time came, Carl Henry got up and identified himself as the editor of Christianity Today and said, I, I, I do have a question for you. Was the resurrection of Jesus Christ the sort of event which, had it taken in place in our day, would have been newsworthy? Did it take place in history in that sense? Bart barked back. Did you say Christianity today or Christianity yesterday? And Henry replied, Jesus Christ yesterday and today and forever. Now, they subsequently became friends of a sort. But, but, but you see, there is a wide stream of people who call themselves Christians today who believe that the Bible talks about the resurrection as if it's an event, but not an historical event. It's an event that is accessible only by faith but faith in the modern sense. Whereas Carl was asking, if the resurrection body of Christ were there by the Sea of Galilee eating fish and somebody had taken a picture, would it have shown up on the film? Or the digital pixels? Would it have shown up? Because if it didn't, it didn't take place in history. Paul understands this. Do you see, the modern understanding of history is such that you can only talk about it being historical if the events that take place take, take place out of the kind of natural sequences of causes that historians talk about. If it takes place by the miraculous work of God, like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you can't speak of it taking place in history. It's an event that is accessible only to faith. And suddenly you've skewed faith. No, 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 no. The Bible insists that Jesus rose from the dead. So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he did not rise from the dead, and you believe that he did, then your faith is worthless. So if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead when in fact he didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile. Worse, Paul says, you're of all people most to be pitied. You got a junky life. Because the Bible never actually wants us to believe something that isn't true. Now, faith is more than believing by the Spirit what God says is true. It's never less. But it's more than that. Because you see, after all, the Bible says that Satan knows that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's not saved. He believes the truth on the resurrection but he's not saved. Faith is valid in part because of the truthfulness of what faith trusts. But it's more than that. It's also the casting of ourself upon this truth, upon God and his word, upon what Christ has done. It is not only believing that, it is trusting him. And that is the way we receive Life from God, freedom from condemnation, the love of God mediated through Christ Jesus in our lost estate. We receive it by faith. God-given faith. Spirit-illumining faith. Believing what is true, for there were witnesses. There are arguments for what is true. But still, it's also trust which comes about by the precious work of the Spirit of God to open our eyes and see its truth and so be captured that we cast ourselves upon it. That's why John 3, 16 does not say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever has a sufficiently high IQ will not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say that. 
It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever is filthy rich shall not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever has great athletic ability and charm will not perish but have everlasting life. For under all of those axes, in some measure, we earn our way to God. But God has ordained things such that he saves those who believe. I don't know you, but I'm sure in a crowd this size, there are some of you, some of you who may even be pastors. Some of you have been church people for a long time. And you do not know what it is to have God's life in you. Listen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Will you not where you sit right now from your heart look heavenward and cry God be merciful to me a sinner and cry again Lord I believe help my unbelief